You don't know flag. You Don't Know Flat, a podcast full of stories about retro gaming, retro computing, video games, arcade games, and technology from a guy who was there and still is. My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flat. Episode 140, Reclaiming Spaces. Hello and welcome to episode 140 of You Don't Know Flat. Today is August 11th, 2013 which means it's also my sister's birthday. So happy birthday, Linda. My little sister is turning 37, which means that in 11 days from now on the 22nd, I will be turning 40. So I plan on, what is the uh, immolation, I believe is the term, when monks set themselves on fire. So that's my goal for the (laughs) 40th birthday. Um, how is everybody? I'm trying to get back on track. I recorded an episode last week. I talked about the Gallaby Ghost Arcade. And, uh, to keep things on track, it is another Sunday, and so we are here for episode 140. The topic of today's show is reclaiming spaces. So if you don't get the, um, very loose pun there, my book about collecting arcade game is called Invading Spaces. Uh, which is a pun itself on Space Invaders. The idea being, of course, um, that as you begin collecting, these arcade cabinets uh, tend to invade your space. They tend to fill up your garage and your home and your game room and uh, eventually storage units (laughs) and your life and your free time. And so um, what today's show is about is reclaiming those spaces. It's about what happens when you start to part with that collection for whatever reason. Maybe you lose interest in collecting arcade games. Maybe you, um, like I did, you you lose the space that you had where you were storing those games. So that's what today's show is going to be about. And I previously recorded it. Uh, I, again, I used the data set. I think the data set is a um, very formidable uh, storage device. So let me start that rewinding here. As I play it back into my Commodore here, we'll have a few minutes as the podcast loads in on my data set for this week's loading time. Loading time. Loading time. Loading time. So far, since I've started recording this episode, my wife has hopped on the riding lawnmower and has begun mowing the front yard. My kids have decided to go in and out of the house 18 times and slam the doors. And, uh, I've heard at least two airplanes <laughs> buzz the house, so could be an interesting uh, show for background noise. We'll see how that goes. Um, how is everybody? It's been a fairly low-key week for me, kind of a recovery week after uh, driving to Chicago the weekend before last and then driving home. The drive to Chicago used to not be a big deal for me. It's 800 miles. Um my record is uh, like 11 hours, 15 minutes. Um, typical time for us is about 12 hours. Yeah, it's uh, as I get older, that drive is getting rougher. Um, I, I'm sore the next day. I used to not be sore. Um, just uh, physically, it seems to be getting more 
difficult to do those long stretches on the road. So will that mean that I begin flying places? I hope not, <laughs> but it could. Uh, I don't know. Is 12 hours in a car worse than uh, four hours or five hours of being hassled, uh, getting on a plane and having people lose your luggage and going through the security checkpoints and, and the uncomfortableness of being on the plane. I don't know. I don't know which is worse. I actually enjoy the drives. You know, I, I mentioned last week I got caught up on all my podcasts. Um, and uh, so I don't know. I kind of enjoy the drive, but I just find that it's um, becoming a little bit more physical demanding uh, than it used to. On uh, Monday night, I recorded a new episode of Throwback Reviews with Sean and Dor. So if you're not listening to Throwback Reviews, you can listen to the latest episode at throwbackreviews.com or you can find it on iTunes. The last episode, we're kind of alternating now. I think I mentioned that before. We um, we do an episode where we talk about a 80s movie, uh, give our thoughts on the movie and stuff. And then, um, and then every other episode, we've kind of started doing uh, these like throwback memory type shows like things from the 80s or our childhood or whatever. And uh, this last episode was all about um, what we did during the summer when we were kids. So there's a lot of talk about building forts and playing war and riding bicycles and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so anyway, if you like that kind of thing, you should go check out throwbackreviews.com. On um, podcast.robohero.com, the home of You Don't Know Flack, I added two links. I added one for throwback reviews, and I also added another one uh, for the retroist. And that link goes right to the retroist podcast. If you don't listen to the retroist, I, I kind of think of him as the uh, granddaddy of all these retro type podcasts. Um, I don't know officially that he's been around longer than all of them, but uh, I do know he's one of the first ones I discovered. And it kind of, you know, I, I think when you're the first person like that, uh, whether you mean to or not, sometimes you set the the mold that other people try to follow and try to do. So uh, if you like uh, shows where people, you know, take a topic, and a retro topic and talk about it, then uh, you should definitely check out The Retroist. And The Retroist was kind enough, and I'm eternally grateful for this, for adding a link to the top of the retroist.com. There's a link that takes you now to You Don't Know Flack. So, um if you are a new listener to You Don't Know Flack, thank you for clicking on that link and joining us. So, welcome. <laughs> welcome, new listeners. Mike Whalen called the You Don't Know Flack voicemail line, which is area code 405-486-YOU DON'T KNOW Flack. That's Y-D-K-F. And Mike basically, um, it wasn't a question more than a, a talking point, but it's a very interesting one. Uh, and basically, uh, he and I had stopped, and when we met, we ate at a restaurant called Pops, which is a restaurant not far from my house. It's um, on the old original Route 66, and it is famous, or infamous, or whatever, for having over a thousand different types of bottled soda, or pop. That's the name, Pops. Um so you could go in and you could get any kind of pop. I mean, like if you like root beer, there's probably a hundred different kinds of root beer. There's orange soda, there's strawberry, there, there's whatever you want. And of course, uh, since it is a, you know, retro pop type restaurant, you know, with these old bottles of pop, they have that typical 50s 
motif and you've seen it a million times i've seen it you know on road trips you always stop and there's a diner and they all look the same they have coca-cola things hanging on the wall they have bar stools where you sit up at the front um you know lots of red and black and white and either route 66 things hanging on the wall or or old pictures or whatever so what mike's question is is he basically was talking about the um staying power of 50s themed restaurants and his theory is that pretty soon we will see 80s themed restaurants along those same lines um but with arcade games and pinball machines and uh that there could be even like a national chain of these type of things he compared that to johnny rockets which i've been to johnny rockets in vegas and it is a very you know that that's their shtick that it's a 50s kind of place but they also have good food you know and uh it's very interesting theory and i actually do believe at some point that will happen and the reason for that is obviously because the 50s restaurants target baby boomers and so um they're either run by baby boomers or they are targeted i mean that's their target audience is um you know that generation and so uh obviously people my age our age people who grew up in the 70s and 80s we don't have any real tie i mean a a true um nostalgic tie to those types of places we don't remember the 50s we don't remember we remember it from things like American Graffiti, or we remember, I mean, the only thing I remember about 50s diners or whatever, or from Happy Days, I guess you could say, um, would be from what we know now, from what we think 50s diners are. Um, so, I totally think that as we get older, I mean, that market is going to be there when we become the equivalent of the baby boomers, and we are. I mean, people in our, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, I mean, we're the ones now with kids. We're the ones taking our families out to eat. And uh, I do think that there will be a market for 80s-themed restaurants. Maybe we should start that. I would total, I would go eat at an 80s-themed place. We just ate at, um, we just got uh, S&B Burger. And I won't say that we just got it. I was just introduced to it last month through uh, some friends of ours. We went and ate there, and now they just opened a new S&B Burger, which is uh, uh, much closer to my house. And it's like, a, I guess they're trying to be like a cater to the rock music crowd. They have pictures on the walls of people shopping in record stores. Their TV's all over showing music videos. They were playing 80s type music, but uh, some 70s, 80s, you know, that type of stuff. Uh, so... And it was very, very loud. It was very difficult to order, actually. But all the waiters and waitresses have tattoos and were wearing Converse's or, you know, cool type of clothes and, uh, I guess, baseball hats. I guess they're allowed to wear baseball hats as part of their shtick. But, um, but yeah, I, you know, so I think that as we get older and we become, uh, you know, as things are targeted towards us and not our parents... And they're run by us and not run by people from our parents' generation. I do think we'll see that. So that's an interesting thought, Mike. Thanks for sending that in because um, uh, really what it did was get me excited. <laughs> about. I'm ready to go to an 80s theme restaurant right now. Uh, what else did I do this week? Um, oh, I, yesterday I went to an art show. There was an art gallery, a local art gallery, and there was an art show that was advertised on Facebook and um uh, one of my friends uh, 
tagged me on Facebook, and so we found out about it. And it was called Art of Bits, Bits of Art. And what it was was an art show dedicated to 80s video games. Um, arcade games, video games, whatever. And so we went, we took the kids, and it was very good. There were um, two rooms, I guess, of this art gallery. First of all, it was in a downtown, it was a part of downtown I don't think I've ever been to. Um, for any local listeners, it was off of right around uh, Northwest 12th and Western. And it was um, several old buildings that looked like they were separate at one point. They've been connected now. Uh, so there, there was, um, a lot of artwork, mostly retro themed. There were some, a lot of Mario type things. There was a Mega Man painting. There was a giant, like four foot by four foot airbrushing of, uh, Sonic the Hedgehog. And then there was another really large one from Earthworm Jim. I did think that, um, th- there were several Pac-Man, uh, pieces of artwork and I will upload these to my local photo gallery, uh, and I'll add a link to that in the show notes. Um, so it's definitely worth looking at if you like old video games and arcade games, which if you're listening to this podcast, I hope you I hope you do. Um, and a lot of reimagining of characters and things like that. The prices were all out of my personal price range. Um, I There was a picture of uh, Mega Man, uh, and I'm not a, a Mega Man I don't. I, I never really. I don't know that much about the series, but I I know enough to to recognize Mega Man, and uh, a friend of mine online who goes by Mega Man fan. I tagged him in the photo when I uploaded it on Facebook, and I said this might be something you're interested in. So he asked how much it was, and I went back and looked at the photos. I keep the original photos, um, you know, the, and the original size. I went and looked, and it was five hundred and fifty dollars. So I'm not a personal. I don't have. Uh, I mean, I have one original piece of artwork hanging in my house and it's a uh smaller than eight and a half by eleven like maybe half of an eight and a half by eleven and it's a painting of a uh gremlin's lunchbox <laughs> which uh, i talked about on my blog I, i'll link to that too but um i saw it on etsy it was like the first thing i found on etsy when i first found etsy and searched for retro I think maybe I searched for Retro Lunchbox, and it was so ridiculous that I bought it, and it's hanging in my game room right now. Um, so I don't have a lot of original art, so I don't have a uh, good, I guess, a, a gauge of, of what artwork costs, you know. Um, so I thought there was a lot of cool things there. There were some non-typical, what I would call uh, non-typical media, I guess. There was a uh, a like an end table for your house or whatever that was shaped like an Xbox 360 controller with complete with buttons and, and a D pad that came up and everything. Um, trying to think of some of the other, there were a couple of painted skateboards. I saw there were some different things like that. So I, I always like things like that. I like um, creative stuff. I would say, you know, like I said, it, out of my price range as far as things to own, but when looking at them or whatever, I thought they're really cool to look at. So I really enjoyed going out there. They also had a DJ, or they had several DJs actually that were taking turns um, remixing eight-bit tunes and things like that. So uh, it's just good to get out and be part of a local, um, you know, your local community, your local whoever it is. Whether it's uh, you know if you're into arcade games, you're into video games, comic books, whatever. You know, it's it's really easy since the 
proliferation, let's say, of the internet, of the World Wide Web for people to get online. Like I, I um, the next episode, you don't know Flack is going to be about um, uh, collecting toys and specifically uh, Star Wars toys. And I don't want to scare anybody away from that topic if you're not into Star Wars or Star Wars toys. It's going to be generic enough that I think you'll still enjoy the episode. Um, but it's very easy. I mean, back then, you would have to go to toy stores. You would have to find other people that collected Star Wars figures and trade with them. You had to do all these things to find these figures. Now, you can go on eBay. And I can, I mean, with my credit card, I could go through and complete my collection right now. Um, and then I would just pay on it for the next hundred years. So, uh, so it is easy if you're into video games and arcade games and things like that. It's easy to go online and find a forum and find people to talk about that. But there is something to be said about doing things with local people, your local scene, supporting that local arcade, supporting that one-off toy store, you know, those type of things like that. So th- that's part of the experience. I think a lot of people either... Uh, have forgotten about, or if you're young enough, never got into. So, uh, anyway, we did enjoy the art show. I will post those pictures. There's a lot of cool things to look at. And then there were, um, I mentioned real quickly, some things that were not related to the show, but were still connected there. And uh, we watched a demonstration on glass blowing. You'll see some pictures of that in there. Uh, we talked to a guy that that runs part of the glass shop. He has a kiln where he makes things, or whatever, and just. Um, talking to any artist that you know, or anybody that's really into what they do and has a passion for it is very interesting. You know, I think I've mentioned this before. The um, my journalism background comes out in those uh, instances, and I just want to ask questions. I just want to find out, you know, how does this work? How do you do this? What's this like? You know, and so we we spent some time yesterday talking to one of the guys who um, does, you know, basically glass, I don't know what you call it. Like he makes glass sculptures and glass things. Um, he had a stained glass door he had made that he showed us just absolutely beautiful stuff. And, um, it was really cool to talk to and just, you know, find out like how many times have you walked past, you know, a stained glass window or something like that? And you go, oh, you know, I mean, you look at it, but you, you don't really take a minute to think about like that it wasn't made by a machine. It was, you know, it was made by a guy. It was made by somebody that put those pieces together and did all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, it was definitely, definitely good to talk to those people. And, uh, it, it does kind of, um, uh, to use Stephen Covey and his, um, you know, seven successful habits. There's one about, um, keeping your, your, uh, saw sharp, you know, which is, um, uh, rekindling those type of things. Um, going in and, you know, making sure things aren't stale and just kind of uh, renewing your interest and stuff. So it's good to get out and talk to people. But anyway, speaking of talking, I have done plenty of that. Look at this data set right here. Completely rewound. And so let's go ahead and hit play on this episode of You Don't Know Flack, and we will begin talking about reclaiming spaces. So if by chance you have not listened to my previous episodes, and I do suggest that you go do that, but I have previous episodes where I've talked about arcade games, but just to get everybody up to speed, I have in my life, like I said, I will be 40 years old later this month. In my life, I have had two separate collections of arcade games. And the first one was 
when my wife and I moved to El Reno, Oklahoma, and we bought this house, and I've talked about this house on the website. It was built in 1880, um, which is 27 years before Oklahoma was a state. It was this old, crappy house, and we had these dreams that we were going to fix this house up and do all these things. And, of course, we didn't do any of that, and we moved right before the house began falling down. But because it was an old-style house, it had all these different rooms, and I had all this space, and around that same time, I discovered my first arcade auction. I have an episode of You Don't Know Flack about arcade auctions. Um, so I went to an auction, and I found that you could get working games in not very good condition, maybe the physical condition of the cabinet or you're missing a marquee or whatever, but you can get working arcade games very inexpensively, and I started buying games... I think I talk on that episode, I got Shinobi for like 25, 35 bucks. I got Matt Mania for that price. I got a Championship Street Fighter 2 game for around that price. Uh, just finding very inexpensive games. And in fact, um, I would occasionally buy games that I didn't care for. In a couple of instances, I bought games I didn't even, I'd never even seen before. But they were so cheap, you know, that uh, as, as you're starting a collection of things... I think that's one thing we do is, is uh, or at least I do, is like when I started collecting arcade games, I would buy ones that I wasn't interested in because maybe I could flip those later or trade those to somebody else or use them for parts, you know, which is something I'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, and so eventually what happened is after about a year of living in that house, we moved and we moved across country to Spokane, Washington to an apartment. And there was no way that I could take six, seven, however many arcade games I had at that time with me. I didn't have anywhere to store them. I didn't have anything to do with them, and so I sold them. So that was what I call my first collection. When I moved back to Oklahoma a few years later, uh, we ended up living in a house that had a backyard shed, and that shed was 32 foot uh, long by about 15 foot wide. And uh, for my... 30th birthday, so gosh, it's been 10 years now. For my 30th birthday, my wife, uh, they all did this behind my back very secretively, decorated it like an 80s arcade. Actually, it looked more like a 50s <laughs> uh, bar kind of place, like what we talked about earlier. It had black and white uh, carpet. They painted the, the walls. They had hung black lights. They did all these really cool things. And at that time, I had two arcade games. They were both sitting out in my garage, and so I put them out there, and, you know, now I had this giant room with two arcade games in it, and there were some other things in there. There were um, an air hockey table and some slot machines and things like that, and but there was an awful lot of room in there that I felt needed to be filled with arcade games, and so I started going to auctions again, and I started buying games, and I started buying a lot of games, and um, I think... Over time, I've owned over 100 arcade games, and the most I ever had at any one time was about 30, and usually I tried to keep that room at around 25. When it got, when I got 30 machines in there, things were getting pretty crowded. It got pretty tough to move around in there. Um, but, you know, between 25 and 30 games, pretty much on hand uh, for a couple of years. And so, what happened to me before happened again, and that is that we moved. We bought a new house. We bought this house, which I'm currently in, which is a gigantic 
beautiful house. I mean, the house itself, very nice. And there's more rooms in this house than we know what to do with. I am literally sitting in what we call now the Star Wars room, which is a guest bedroom. And we threw a futon in here, so at least it has some semblance of function. But really what this room does is hold my Star Wars collection. There are shelves all over the place filled with toys. Uh, I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> Especially for a grown man to have a Star Wars room. But uh, the point of it is that the trade-off that we had was that the old house was like a lot and then another half a lot, which is why we had room for a swimming pool and why we had room for this uh, giant shed that we turned into a backyard arcade. This house, most of the space is in the house. The backyard is okay-sized. It's not large, and I don't know that it's big enough to put um, a building of the size that I had before. And then our yard here backs up to a pond. So, number one, I could put a building out there. Uh, I don't think it would be as big as the other one. Number two, if I did do that, it would basically block our view of the pond and we would be staring at, you know, a building. I have seen people who have turned their garages into arcades or whatever. Um, my garage, I mean, I guess what you basically do is you're, you're giving up the functionality of your garage, obviously, because you're taking up that space. My garage is not well insulated, which would mean, you know, you would have to basically build a frame of a room inside your garage um, and my garage is full. I have a three car garage that there's no way right now I could get a car into. Um, there's a motorcycle and a golf cart, which take up a lot of room. Uh, there's shelves, there's old, there's a couple of arcade cabinets, there's crap, there's hunting or not hunting. Uh, there's camping, uh, supplies out there of my wives. There's, there's, uh, just everything, you know, that's where we store our stuff that's not in the house is in the garage. And so uh, we would have to really shuffle things around and really move things out to turn that into an arcade. Um, also, my wife would kill me if I did that. So so what I became faced with, uh, the author, which is me, of Invading Spaces suddenly did not have room for 25 to 30 arcade games. So when we moved out of the house, and we had a little bit of an overlap, um, we bought this house the year before last in, uh, right in October, and we didn't sell the other house until December. So I had a little bit of time to move things around, and what I ended up doing was buying or renting a 20 by 20 storage unit at a place, I forgot what it's called, but but what, the, what their um, selling point is, is that uh, you rent by the month. The first three months, you get it at half price. And then after those three months, then it goes to the full price. So for a 20 by 20 storage unit, half price was a hundred bucks a month plus tax or whatever it was, but uh, like 108 bucks. But basically let's say it's a hundred bucks a month. So I had to use my dad's trailer and, um, Moving, let let me describe what moving one game into my arcade was like. My arcade was in my backyard. There was no paved path to this arcade. So the first thing you have to do is, I had, I had this very sharply uh, 
sloped driveway. So you had to back the truck and trailer up into the driveway in my house. And now the trailer is a, at a, you know, 20 degree angle or whatever. So anything that you're doing, you're moving and to get the, the game out of the trailer, you have to wheel it uphill at this point. Okay. So the first thing I would do is get my dolly, strap the game on. Uh, and there's a reason for that. I learned this one the hard way. Um, strap the game to the dolly, push it uphill until you could get it down the ramp and get it off the trailer. Okay, so that's step one. Then what you do is wheel it around the little sidewalk that goes to the front of my house, and now you have to turn left. So now we're turning left, and we're taking the game with the dolly across my front yard. My front yard, by the way, which is routinely attacked by gophers and my kids with shovels or whatever, so it's really like a minefield of holes and potholes or whatever. This is why I began strapping games to the dolly uh, was because the very first game that I moved back there was going really well. And um, I talk about this in uh, Invading Spaces in the first chapter, in fact. Uh, it was uh, Time Soldiers? I don't know. Uh, anyway, so... I'm moving this game back. I hit a pothole and the whole thing shifts to the left. And basically this game fell off the dolly into my yard and I'm the only person there. And so I was trying to stop it and I grabbed the top and I ended up riding it, you know, like a tree when someone yells timber and you're just stuck at the top of it. So it like grabs me and, and we fly over together. I fly off the top and, and, um, it did disconnect a bunch of cables inside. The monitor wasn't working, but it was, um, the video cable had come unhooked. So, yeah, I learned that lesson early on. But anyway, so now we've, we're going through the yard, and now you have to go through a single wide uh, gate in the stockade fence. And there's the fence has been, uh, there's like a trail of concrete underneath the fence that goes all the way around. So there's about an inch and a half on either side of this gate that you have to get this arcade game through. But because there's that concrete little trough at the bottom, you kind of have to get a running start. So I would move the game up to the gate, make sure I was lined up, scoot back, and then push really hard and run and jump over this concrete thing. And then hopefully you don't hit any potholes or whatever because now everything is going to go flying. Um, at that point, you turn left, go all the way across the yard, still dragging this thing. Uh, and then you get to the arcade. And the arcade had two sets of steps. One was concrete, one was wooden, that you now have to move the game up. And it was really impossible for one person to do this. So uh, what I would do sometimes is put the game forward and then kind of like put the, the front edge of it on that front little ledge and then lift it up and then try to scoot it up onto the deck. Once it was up there, I could weasel it around to where I could climb up there, squeeze it between the railing and the game, go all the way around, turn the game around 180 degrees, lift the dolly up and over, Re put everything back on the dolly, tilt it back, and then finish wheeling it into the arcade. Okay, this is for one game. Now, some of these things, the part about going up the stairs, going downstairs is infinitely easier. Games on their own will go downstairs, <laughs> sometimes in a controlled manner, sometimes uncontrolled, but they will go downstairs. But basically, if you reverse that whole process, that's what it was like to get a game out of my arcade. So once we bought this new house, I had to move... 30 games out of the arcade. And so I did the first load by myself. I loaded up 16 games. My dad's trailer would hold uh, 
basically two rows of eight games. He's got a, a big giant trailer. I loaded this thing up, and then I was sore for a week. I literally could not walk. My my back had given out. Um, it, it was terrible. And I moved all these machines uh, down the steps, across the yard, through the gate, across down the sidewalk, up onto the ramp, put them in place. And actually, um, something that's not in Invading Spaces, because it happened since I wrote that book, um, but while doing this, I actually dropped a cabinet on me. It's only the second cabinet I think I've ever dropped. One was uh, the, the Time Soldiers one. The other one was uh, my Road Blasters. And so as I was putting it on the trailer, uh, you know, because now you're putting it on, now the trailer is, is downhill. And so I'm scooting it, scooting it, and it's, it has these little knobby, you know, metal feet that are grabbing onto the wood. So I tried to tip it back further, and the whole thing just fell and fell on me. Um, and my mom was standing nearby, and she's, you know, screaming or whatever. And it really wasn't that bad. It was kind of a controlled fall, if you will. I mean, I couldn't stop it from coming over, but it's not like it just went, you know, like it was a surprise. You know, I saw it coming, and so I just tried to slow it with my body uh, until it, you know, it was laying on top of me. And then I kind of weaseled out from under it and then got it picked back up. But uh, yeah, it, moving, I, I always said, no matter what order you move games in, like I would move three games and the third one was always the heaviest. And even if you moved them in the opposite order, the third one's always the heaviest. They just seem to get heavier as you're doing it, you know? And so, um, so basically I knew for that second batch, I just couldn't do it myself. And so I, I got my friends, uh, my buddy Jeff and my buddy Tim, they came over. And the other part of this is I moved all the easy ones. I moved all the normal type cabinets, you know, scramble, um, Shinobi, the other Shinobi, <laughs> Robocop. All those that were really easy to move, I moved on my own. So what was left was uh oh uh Ivan Stewart, the big giant off-road driving game that has three steering wheels and gas pedals, and all of that crap had to be disconnected to get it through the doorway. My four-player X-Men with the giant control panel, my three-player Rampage with the giant control panel. Uh, any game that was oversized like that, which had to have the control panel disconnected, um, most of them had, um, what are they called, the little Mylar, um, the quick jacks, you know, so you could unhook these things. Some didn't, so, you know, now I have control panels that are duct taped in place and we're moving things around. Uh, so eventually I got all these things moved over into this 20 by 20 storage unit, and it was pretty packed. So, reclaiming spaces. My next job was to decide what I was going to keep and what I was going to sell. That was one of the most difficult decisions uh, that I've ever gone through. The entire process was very painful. And um, so, first of all, why did I buy the games that I bought? Originally, why did I buy them? And I bought them for a few reasons. Not, And they're not all necessarily um, obvious reasons. 
I mean, you might just think, oh, well, he bought the games he wanted to play. Well, that's not necessarily true. I bought Scramble because it was cheap. I actually hate Scramble, and I've owned two Scramble cabinets, and they were both cheap. And I suspect um, people just sell them cheap because everybody hates Scramble. Um, <laughs> so I'm sure I'll get uh, whoever doesn't hate Scramble will call in next week. But uh, so right off the bat, and this is a, a um, an idea that I had originally. I just didn't follow it very well, but when I began getting a little bit more um, particular about what games I bought, I tried to buy games that weren't easily emulated in MAME. And games that are easily emulated by MAME are games that have a four-way or eight-way joystick with two or three buttons, and that's it. And so there's no uniqueness to the controller. There's no, um, you know, nothing on the machine that makes it, you know, a lot of the games I had were not in the original cabinets, so I wasn't really gaining anything by having those machines. So um, I had a two-player Bucky O'Hare, gone. I had, you know, the scramble cabinet, gone. Um, so those were easy decisions to make right off the bat. Any game that either, A, was very easily playable in MAME, or games that I didn't have any particular attachment to. I um, owned a RoboCop cabinet, and the RoboCop cabinet was actually in I, an old... Uh, Namco, I think it was a Rally X cabinet that had also been repainted. So it's a conversion. It was a bad conversion. It had Robocop in it. And I got it because I actually bought a, a lot deal from a guy on Craigslist one time with five arcade games. And so that was one of the ones. I had no interest in it. When I got it home, I plugged it in. I'm not sure I ever played it past the first level. Nobody else ever played it. That's an easy uh, game to part with. So gone. Next was games that either A, were not easily playable in MAME, games that I enjoyed playing, or games that I had some sort of sentimental attachment to. This was harder because I knew that I had to get rid of some of them, and so I had to decide which of the games that I didn't want to part with was I going to part with. Um, and one of the games that I sold was my Karate Champ game. Now, I've told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again. Um, my buddy, Justin, grew up in Norman, which is about 45-minute drive from where I grew up, which is Yukon. And we met over um, Commodore BBSs. He ran a Commodore BBS, and so I started calling it, and that's how we met. Both of us liked playing Karate Champ, but... Uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of time where I didn't get to go to Norman or he didn't get to come to Yukon. Uh, so halfway in between was an arcade called uh, Malibu Grand Prix, which you may remember if you're from the 80s, Malibu Grand Prix had uh, go-karts. They had small ones and big ones, uh, and people would go there and race go-karts, but they also had a big uh, arcade. And so Justin and I, it was like almost exactly halfway in between Norman and Yukon. And so we would meet at Malibu, Malibu Grand Prix, and we would play Karate Champ against each other. So years later, uh, I found locally a Karate Champ game that was for sale. It was part of a, a lot deal. Actually, it was part of the lot deal that I got um, Robocop in. And so I bought that game. And when I got it home, this Karate Champ cabinet, and I opened it up, there were Malibu Grand Prix tokens inside it from Oklahoma City. There was only one Malibu here in Oklahoma City, and that was it. 
and they only had one Karate Champ game, and this was it. So this turned out to be the cabinet that Justin and I played Karate Champ on in the 1980s. And so it was a cabinet that I swore I would never get rid of. But um, I got rid of it. <laughs> and it was a very difficult decision. And now when I'm thinking about it, I'm like, shoot, I should have put that in a closet somewhere. Um, and I got rid of it because I didn't play a lot of Karate Champ, you know? And so, and I had to pick, if you're only going to have, here's the thing. If you're going to own 30 arcade games, you got a lot of leeway as to what you're going to buy. If you're going to try 30 flavors of ice cream over the next week, then you're not going to agonize over every choice. Am I going to have chocolate or strawberry today? Well, who cares? Tomorrow, have the other one. And the day after that, have vanilla. And the day after that, I mean, you're, you're going to have 30 choices. But if I told you that you could only have three choices of ice cream and I presented, you know, a hundred to you, it becomes much more difficult to choose um, those specific things. And so, you know, I got the collection down to probably 12 games and I knew that in my garage I had room for about six. So Karate Champ is one that I ended up letting go and I got um, decent money. I my, my goal on all these was just not to lose money. I had kept track of what I had paid for these and what I had put into them and so I was just trying to break even and I didn't break even on all of them, but on most of them I came, and I think if you averaged it out, I, I, I think if you averaged it, um, that it would be, uh, that I broke even. So you're probably wondering now, what did I keep? One thing I kept was a 48 and one multicade. Now they have 60 and ones. They have hundred and ones. Actually, they have ones that are main based that are thousands and ones, but a 48 and one, was basically it was the first um, multi-type board, and it has Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Junior, Donkey Kong Three, Pac-Man, Miss Pac-Man. It has you know Galaga, Galaxia, and all those classic games, all on one machine. And so my thought process was, I can have one machine that plays all these things. I can get rid of all those other games. Now, from a financial standpoint, um that's a much more inexpensive way to do it. Um, both in financially and spatially, right? Because you only have one cabinet and it does all these things and it's not MAME dependent. So you're not having to work on hardware or anything like that. I mean, it's a normal arcade board. There are some complaints on the 48 and ones uh, that the sound is not 100% accurate on some of the games or this and that. Um, I've always said it's close enough for me. Uh, you know, it's, um, they are close. They are close. Let's say that. Um, so I kept that. I kept my multicade and I actually traded, um, and this was probably a bad, I don't know. I, this is one of those things that you lay awake at night and I still think about it. It's been over a year. I still think about it. Um, but I, I traded several of my games for a multi Williams, machine which is like the 48 and one but it has it's williams centric um partially it has defender stargate 
Bubbles, um, all, Joust, Robotron, all these different um, Williams games. Um, and it also has Mario Brothers and Super Mario Brothers and a few other weird ones that they always throw in. I don't know. They always seem to throw in some ones that nobody would ever play. I don't, I don't really understand that. But, um, you know, so I traded several machines to get that one. In retrospect, was it a good trade? I don't know. Um, but it did meet the need of now I had one cabinet that played a lot of games. And so from a space perspective and probably financially, it was, it's just hard to swallow. Um, you know, when you have a bunch of games and, and you paid 50 to a hundred bucks for them and somebody else has another game, they're asking a thousand for, it's hard to justify, you know, well, I mean, in my mind, I'm giving you five cabinets. You're giving me one. So I'm obviously not having a good deal, but financially, um, you know, he was asking more for his one than I was for my five. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, that's what I did. So it's a decision I have to live with. Um, so as I began selling these games, here are some things that I found out. Number one, the parts that make up an arcade cabinet are worth well more than the price of an arcade cabinet. So what do I mean by that? And let me give you a great example. In my garage right now, I have a two-player Rampart machine. It is a joystick version. It is not the trackball version. It has also been installed in a gauntlet cabinet. So there's a, a handful of Atari uh, games from that era, and the pinouts are the same, so they can be swapped in and out. So gauntlet, Rampart, um, there's a few others. So... Let me tell you what the market for a two-player joystick rampart in a gauntlet cabinet is. Zero. I put that game on Craigslist uh, for 300 I didn't get a single email. I dropped it. I put it for 200 I didn't get a single email. I have put that game on Craigslist for $100. It works. It works 100%. If you're a fan of rampart, I mean, it, it's a functioning rampart that just happens to be in a gauntlet 2 cabinet. For $100... That's when you start getting the, what I call the Craigslist tire kickers. And these are the people that want to email you and they say, well, you know, boy, $100 is a lot of money. I'll give you, you know, 12 cents or whatever. And and just, it's always enough to make me mad that I never, I don't like dealing with those people. So right now that game's sitting in my garage. Um, but this is what I could do. I know that there are people out there that would like to restore a gauntlet. This is a pretty good gauntlet cabinet. I could probably get 50 bucks for the cabinet. Or if you want to turn it into a main machine, God, I would hate that. But uh, if you wanted to maim a functioning gauntlet cabinet, I mean, this is your cabinet. So I could sell the cabinet right now. If I want to sell it today, I could sell it for 25 bucks. But I could probably put 50 um, and wait a week or two and sell it for 50 it has a really good functioning monitor in it. I could pull that monitor out and probably get 100 for it. I could pull the joysticks out. I could pull the buttons out. I could pull the Rampart board out and sell the board. So I could probably get 200 for all the parts. But when I put them all together into a working game, it's only worth 100 And so this kind of leads us into this whole market about multi-cade cabinets. So a multi-cade, and that's a slang term that, you know, it's any of these boards that play multiple machines and, and I just call it multi-cade. I think multi-cade is actually a brand of one of them, but, um, so you can take, and this is what happened over the years. Um, Miss Pac-Man or Galaga, 
uh, let's take Galaga. Galaga was one of the most popular arcade games uh, as far as the arcade game market. I mean, you could buy a Galaga, you could sell it for $1,000. 800 900000 whatever. Maybe more if it's a really good, you know, restored condition or whatever. What happened to the Galaga market? Well, it came out with 48-in-1s or 60-in-1s, whatever. Uh, and these are boards that will play 60 games. And so with um, a small adapter... You can pull a Galaga board out. You can put this, uh, and, and, and Galaga is kind of a bad example in a way because it has, uh, I mean, you really have a two-way joystick. Um, but, um, you know, let's say you throw it into a game, or let's just say you throw in a four-way joystick or whatever. Um, you can buy, shipped, these 48-in-1s, 60-in-1s or whatever for less than 100 bucks. So you buy a new board, and let's say you upgrade the joystick. Now you have a 60-in-1 machine, and it plays 60 games, including Miss Pac-Man. So now, all of a sudden, who is your market for Miss Pac-Man cabinets? And the market is, I mean, if you only liked Miss Pac-Man, or you really want Miss Pac-Man, you know, um, then you have that. But it's very easy to tell someone, well, I have a Miss Pac-Man cabinet for 1000 but I can sell you a game that plays 60 games, and one of them is Miss Pac-Man, and I could sell that to you for $750. So that market for those dedicated Miss Pac-Man cabinets drops significantly. It goes to, it turns it immediately into uh, people that used to like playing Miss Pac-Man. Those people are gone. Those people have moved over to the multicade. Now all you have left are the people that specifically want to collect a Miss Pac-Man cabinet, and that's a much smaller subset of that original group. So I had a lot of cabinets. My Now, I, I lucked out. I really lucked out on my Miss Pac-Man cabinet. I got a really good deal on it. I got it at a um, estate sale, actually. And I put a little bit of work into it, but I you know had it up and running and stuff. And so I was able to sell it... Um, and, and not, you know, take a loss on it like I did on, on some of the other ones. Um, but there were a lot of games I owned. Um, just let's randomly, like Shinobi. Shinobi's a $100 game, you know. I mean, give or take, you know. If you find the right person, maybe you could get a little bit more for it. But basically, um, you know, I could get 100 bucks for it. I could take that and uh, put a 48 and one board in. And, and and I I know that I'm doing I use those terms interchangeably 48 and one and 60 and one and multicade and they're all I'm all, I'm referring to the same thing whenever I say that which is you know a board that plays a lot of different games so I could take Shinobi upgrade it to some sort of multicade system uh, for less than a hundred bucks and maybe I want to put a new marquee or some side art or something that that makes it look like a multicade now and now all of a sudden it's worth. 400 or 500 or 800 or whatever, you know, whatever you could get for it on, on Craigslist, you know, depending on what it looks like and, and who, uh, you know, your market is basically. So a lot of the games when I bought them were worth more than what they were when I sold them because of that market. Um, so I could have made more by parting them out and I didn't do that because I didn't have the heart to do it. And that's probably a personal fault of mine. Um, I mean, that's definitely something that, 
If I'd wanted to, I could have. I could have taken a lot of those cabinets and parted them out and made more money. And, and um, you know, I had some that were, I mean, if you have a cabinet that's water damaged, now it's it's not even worth, you know, the hundred bucks, right? It'd be a little bit less. But if I wanted to make the money, what I should have done is pulled all the parts out, sold them, and then took a cabinet that looked okay, but with a little bit of water damage and busted it up with a sledgehammer and thrown it away. And I um, did actually bust up one or two cabinets and, and um, very difficult thing to do, especially as somebody who considered themselves um, not only a collector, but a protector of some of these um, video game and arcade game artifacts. You know, that's the way I saw them is some of these I really felt like I rescued. I found them in places where they were being destroyed or had been modified, and I, I did what I could to convert them back. I did what I could to, um, you know, try to keep them up and running and stuff. And so it was uh, difficult decisions all the way around to... Um, to get some of these things moved on. Um, another lesson I learned when it comes to selling arcade games is it, people, I'm going to try to find a nice way to say this because I don't mean anything bad by it. But if you're not an arcade person, uh, and by that I mean somebody who currently collects arcade games or works on arcade games, then you probably have a false sense of what you are buying if you buy an arcade game. For example, uh, I sold an Ultimate Mortal Kombat 3 cabinet to uh, a lady, a friend of ours. I delivered it. No, I didn't deliver it. I went and got it later. Uh, they came and picked it up. I showed it to them working. It was in my garage. The kids played it. Uh, they all loved it. They gave me cash. Uh, they loaded it up in their pickup and they left. Less than a week later, I get a call and they say that the game is broken. Now, if I were any sort of businessman, I would have said, tough titty. <laughs> you bought a game, you saw it working, you played it, you left with it, done. Okay. Unfortunately, I'm a very terrible businessman. Um, and I felt bad when these people called me. And so when they called me, I said, I'll come out and take a look at it. Now, if I were good at fixing arcade games, then I wouldn't have had a bunch of arcade games broken sitting in my arcade. I would have fixed them all. But um, there are parts of it that I'm not good at. Monitors is something that um, I've just never got the hang of. Uh, all the, you know, cap kits and soldering and desoldering and stuff. You know, I, I took a stab at it, but um, usually my repairs made things worse. And so um, I went and looked at it and I asked him what happened. And he said, well, he had turned it on and the video didn't come on. And then so based on that, um, he had started fiddling around with the wires and stuff. And now there were all sorts of wires that were disconnected and I didn't know where they went. So finally, I... Um, all I could do, I felt like all I could do was to take the game back and give them their money. And I said, I'll, I'll try to fix it. And if I can fix it, I'll, I'll redeliver it. I'll bring it back out to you. And so I took it home and honestly, I had no intention of ever taking that game back to them. Uh, and it, what, it had nothing to do with, with these people. What it had to do with is the same thing that you get into if you've ever fixed anyone's computer. 
If you've ever worked on someone's PC and you fixed a problem, you have now not only are you responsible for fixing that problem for life, but anything that goes wrong with their computer, the first thing they're going to think of is that you were over there and you worked on their computer. And I've had it happen many, many times. And it's really one thing that keeps me from working on people's computers is the fact that you have now taken ownership for all repairs on their computer from now till the end of time. And it happens. And so um, I just knew that if anything ever went wrong with that machine, that they were going to call me and I was going to be on the hook to fix it. And it wasn't, um, I mean, when you buy an arcade game, I, I guess what you should think of is, I mean, what are you buying? And you're buying something that's at this point, 20 to 30 years old. And it's a possibility that it's going to break, you know? And so it's only natural for you to go back to that person and see if they can fix it or see, you know, whatever. And, and part of this was, the person that I sold this cabinet to was a personal friend, you know, so I, it wasn't just like someone off the street. It was someone that we knew. And so, it, you know, I, I wouldn't do somebody that way. I wouldn't sell somebody I knew something and then have it break and then just be like, oh, well, tough crap. Enjoy your broken machine. Um, so uh, what I ended up doing was selling a lot of my games to people inside the quote unquote hobby or the business or whatever that I knew um, personally. And this was for me, not for them, but for me, I knew that those people would have the ability to fix them if they broke. So it was for me. It was so I could sleep better knowing that I hadn't sold, you know, stuff to somebody that wouldn't have any, um, you know, way to fix things if they broke. Unfortunately, when you're dealing with people, and this, uh, if you've ever seen uh, American Pickers, I think that's the name of it, and these guys go out and they find things and they're, they're going to flip them. They're going to buy stuff and then they're going to sell them. And, and, you know, so they always say, you know, well, at that price, there's no meat on the bone. And what they mean is, you know, if you have something that's worth $100, they're not going to pay you $100 for it because they know they can sell it for $100. So they want to pay you 50 And so it becomes... Uh, a kind of little game where if you could sell it for 50 or for a hundred, why didn't you already do that? Because they have connections that you don't have. So you can either hang on to it forever and hope to get that hundred dollars, or you could sell it now for 50 and they'll take it off your hands and then they'll probably sell it for a hundred. Um, and so if, if it's something that you don't have a vested interest in, it's a lot easier when you know what you paid for something, <laughs> it makes it a little bit more difficult. And so as I began selling machines to people um, that I knew, I knew what they were going to do. They were going to turn them into multi-cades and turn around and, and double their price on them. And I really um, started running out of options. And when I started running out of options was January, uh, the year before last. And the reason I began running out of options was because of what I told you about that storage unit. And so from October, I think I started renting it in November. So November, December, January, I paid $100 a month. In February, it went up to $200. And so now I'm paying $200 a month. So now you have to start doing this math of if I hang on to a game for six months, 
okay, maybe I could get an extra 100 or another 200 At six months, I would have paid another 1200 in rent. And so it just didn't make sense from a financial standpoint uh, to do that. So I had to um, suck it up. I had to make some decisions that I didn't really want to make. I had to sell things for less than what I thought they were worth. And I had to sell them to people that I knew were going to take them back, destroy them, or convert them and resell them. And I've always had a problem. You know, Susan and I, um, I told her one time that I wanted to um, run a, like a, a thrift store, not a thrift store, but like a um, like a, a booth at an antique mall where I would sell toys. I would sell Star Wars things or whatever. And she was like, that's the worst idea ever. And I was like, what are you talking about? I love that stuff. And she says, you love owning it you love showing it off but you wouldn't want to sell anything and so that's what would happen is people would come in and they'd want to buy stuff and you wouldn't sell anything and you know i was really indignant and i said yeah you're absolutely right (laughs) because it's the truth i wouldn't want to sell any of that stuff people would come in i'd want to talk to them about star wars toys or arcade games or video games or whatever but i wouldn't want to sell any of it you know and when you sell something, and this is the part of me that makes me not a good salesman. When I sell something, I care about who it goes to. I care about what they're going to do to it. And when you're in that business, you can't. If you're selling arcade games and you know, I mean, if the person on the other end, if they're going to restore it or they're not, not going to restore it or they're going to turn it into a multicade or they're going to flip it or they're going to set it on fire and do a Mexican hat dance around it while it burns, you can't care. You got your money and it's gone. You've sold that item. And that was part that I couldn't ever get over. I really wanted the games to go to people that I thought would enjoy them or whatever. And in fact, One of the machines that I saved was a Commando machine. I bought a Commando because I liked the game Commando, and I found one that was in really good condition. I've had several offers to buy it, and people have told me that that's exactly what they're going to do. They're going to turn it into a multi-cade because it's already set up for it, and they're going to flip it, and I wouldn't sell it to those people. And in fact, I have a standing deal right now with um, the Arcadian, the Retrocade, out in Fayetteville, Arkansas, that I'm going to give them that machine. I just haven't found the time. I mean, it's a four-hour drive, so I have to throw it on the back of my truck and drive it out to Arkansas. But I'm giving it to them. And the reason I'm giving it to them is because I know it's going to be appreciated. I know what they're going to do with it. They're not going to burn it down. They're not going to tear it up. They're going to put it with their other games and let people play it. And that's what I want with the games, you know? And so... Now, is that a good business model on my part? No. Um, But I would rather give it to a place that I know it's going to be enjoyed than sell it to somebody who's going to tear it up. So that's why I'm not in the arcade business, Sumi. What else did I run into as I began reclaiming spaces? Um, Well, I mentioned a little bit the dregs of Craigslist. First of all, every person, not every person, that's a generalization, but when you hit a certain um, price point on Craigslist, you bring out people, I, I call them the garage sailors because it's that's what they're doing. It's just like going to a garage sale. I remember when I was a kid, I um, 
we had a garage sale and I put a whole bunch of my Hot Wheel cars out for this garage sale. And I, I put a little sign that said a quarter each. And I'm sitting at this little table and a little chair. And these people kept coming up and they're like, well, would you take 15 cents? I'm like, seriously? I mean, I was like eight and I was, <laughs> I was already mad at eight. I was upset with people. I'm like, really, you won't pay a quarter. You know what I mean? Or even like, you know, five for a dollar or whatever. You got to go. And it's that garage sale mentality where you've got to get a better deal. You got to talk these people down. Well, would you take 20 cents? Well, what about 18 cents? You know? It just makes me mad. It makes me want to throw a matchbox and hit them in the face and hopefully poke their eye out <laughs> with the Hot Wheels car. Because everybody now, I mean, it was bad before, uh, but now everybody thinks they're on Storage Wars or Pawn Stars or whatever, you know, those reality shows. So you put a, an arcade game, I put a Rampart, $100. And then I have people like, they come over, well, I give you 20 Well... You could kiss my butt because I'm not selling it for $20, you know. Um, those same people, I would get this. Well, I don't have the money now. Will you take payments? I'm not making payments or I'm not going to accept payments on a $100 item. If you don't have $100, get off Craigslist. Quit looking at $100 items, you know. Uh, what else did I get? Oh, I got people that said, will you hold it for me? Well, I could pay you now, but I, I don't have any way to pick it up for a few months. No, I don't want it in my house. That's why I'm getting rid of it because I don't have room for it. I don't want to, you know. It's not a timeshare. It's an arcade game. Come pick it up. So I ended up with, right now I have five arcade games left. I have my 48 and 1, and I have my Multi-Williams. So those are two machines that play a lot of different games. Um, I have 720, and 720 is a unique game. It's a unique game on multiple levels. You know what? I'll, I'll tell you about the other two cabinets I still have, and then we'll talk about that. I have the uh, Rampart, which I can't get rid of for 100 bucks. So when I go to Arcadia, I'm going to ask them if they want that too. Um, and then I've got the Commando one. And I had a sixth one. I had a, a main cabinet that all the work was done except for the PC. I mean, you know, I had the encoder. I had all that stuff. And I just, you know, it sat there for a year. I never touched it. I'm like, I'm not doing that. I'm not, you know. Not that I'm above it, I just I'm never going to get around to it, and so I just uh, recently um, gave it to some friends in hopes that they'll fix it up and that they'll they'll get it going, you know. And and sometimes it's funny that now that they own it, I'm really interested in getting it up and running. <laughs> it sat here for a year, I never touched it. Now that they have it, I want to know what the status is. I want to know if they're working on it. I want to I want to go help now that it's somebody else's project, you know. But when it was mine, I didn't touch it. So. Man. Um, and now we're weed eating outside the window. I hope you can't hear that. It is like really the day of noise. I'm so surprised that nobody has bought megaphones and is standing outside my door testing them at that point. Ridiculous. Um, so 720, let's talk about 720 real quick. And I, um, have an IOU, uh, with a friend of mine. We're going to record an entire episode about skateboarding video games, and I just haven't got around to it. Um, and 720 is going to be one that we talk about. But just to talk a little bit about this cabinet. When I first started collecting arcade games, I made a list of the games that I wanted to own someday. And that list changed over the years. I mean, one of the ones I put up there was Tron. Uh, and I think I put Pole Position. Those are two games that are notoriously uh, difficult to keep up and running. Uh, pole Position, whenever you see a working Pole Position, you should play it as long as you can because it will not be working next month. I, mean, I don't know what it is about 
pole position. I mean, it's it's definitely the older technology. I mean, these are early '80s type games, and um, they they're just notorious for breaking down. So those went on the list and they came off the list. But number one, I mean, it's always been in the top five, and I think it was number one on my list was 720, which is the skateboarding game from Atari. It has great sound. It has great graphics. It has a very unique cabinet and unique shape cabinet with a big radio ghetto blaster on top for the marquee. Um, and it has a unique control system. It's a joystick. It looks like a joystick, but really it's a spinner. Um, but it's a joystick mounted at an angle on top of a spinner, which connects to an encoder board, which connects to this spinner with a bicycle chain. It's the most ridiculous thing I have actually seen just the joystick assembly sell for between 100 and 150 on eBay. Um, I have a spare board set for it. I have a spare controller for it. I have the entire game and it works. I put that on my list of games I wanted to own someday. When I first, when I bought my first cabinet, uh, which would have been in um, probably 93, 94 in that range. I didn't find one for over 10 years. Um, it took a long, long time. I actually bid on a 720 arcade game that was in Denver. So I was going to have to drive, you know, 10, 11, 12 hours to Denver, pick it up and drive home. Uh, so I was really, you know, on the hunt for one. And then one showed up in my backyard and I paid more for that game. That's the most expensive game I ever bought. And I didn't, I mean, it wasn't exorbitant. I think I paid like 600 bucks for it or something. Um, so it was high compared to the market that I was shopping in. You know, I mean, I found a Qbert for a hundred bucks. Um, I had a lot of, I don't think I paid more than two or two fifty for any of my other games. So compared to the rest of my collection, it was expensive, but you know, considering how long I had looked for one and that it was literally, you know, 15 minutes away from my house, I had to grab it. And so that when I was making the list of what could I get rid of, I just, couldn't get rid of this one. I searched for it for so long. I enjoy it so much. It has a unique controller that does not translate to any other controller. I mean, it's terrible with a joystick. It's terrible on the PlayStation. Um, so I just felt like this is one that I had to keep. I have not turned it on in a year. It's sitting in the corner of my garage, but just the fact that it's sitting there makes me happy. Um, so that's one uh, I mean, the multi-cades, I could even see getting rid of at some point um, because you can play, you know, MAME on a computer or whatever. And in fact, what I, I, I set up, uh, I built a emulation computer. I put it in my game room. I bought the wireless adapters, the USB wireless adapters for Xbox 360 controllers. So I have two 360 controllers. I put a front end on it. This machine boots up, and then you can play MAME on it. Uh, and I have some other emulators up and running on it, too. NES, um, Super Nintendo, a couple others. Um, and it's kind of an unfinished project. It's one of those things that you got, you know, once you get it working, then it just kind of drops off. But uh, so if I, I mean, I could see myself getting rid of those multicades at some point because if I want to go upstairs and fire that machine up, I can play Mario Brothers, I can play Donkey Kong, I can play Galaga. So I would see myself getting rid of those before I got rid of 720. I gotta say that 720 will be the last one. It may be one that I keep with me for the rest of my life. I don't, you know, I just don't, 
uh, I don't see myself parting with that. Um, it would anything's for sale for the right price, but between the cabinet and the board and the controller, I mean the extra board, the extra controller, that stuff. I mean, it would have to be a thousand dollar offer. Um, then I'd think about it, and it would have to be somewhere where I get rights to go play it. <laughs> that has to be somewhere I get access to. Um, let's see, what else did I want to talk about? You know, I had two other talking points here. The first one was, uh, I had people ask me, since I bought so many games from arcade auctions, why didn't I try to sell my games through an arcade auction? And I'll tell you why. And it's, uh, for one reason and it's money. Um, you know, a lot of the games that I had were hundred dollar games by that. I mean, you know, I bought them for a hundred bucks. I could get a hundred bucks for them. They weren't worth a lot more than that. So, the closest regular arcade auction to me takes place down in Dallas. Uh, and it happens uh, about quarterly, about every three months they have this auction. So, the auction, uh, and I think the prices have gone up since then, but originally the auction was, it cost $15 per game, so you put $15 in, plus they got 15% of the selling price. So, let's just say, just rounding, just to play the numbers, Let's say I, I took a game down there that I got a hundred bucks for. Right off the bat, they get thirty of that, so I'm I'm getting seventy dollars profit. Here's the problem. Well, when I say profit, I mean, you know, if I paid a hundred bucks, I'm I'm losing thirty already. But anyway, okay, so I I make seventy dollars off the sale. To get to Dallas and back, uh, I would have to take my truck and with the trailer on it, and this is being optimistic, I would get around fifteen miles to the gallon. It's 240 miles to Dallas. That's 480 miles round trip. Uh, divide that by 15. That's 32 gallons of gas. If I pay 350 a gallon right now, that's 112 in gas. Uh, so taking games down there and selling them for 100 bucks, I mean, I'd have to sell two or three, you know, with everything else considered. And just to, I mean, the first one I sold, I'd be giving away. I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't justify um, doing that, you know, so. So I sold them locally. Maybe I made a little bit less money. Maybe I broke even, but but um, it was uh, it was what it was. The other thing I should talk a little bit about is not the fact that I sold my arcade games, but the fact that I sold part of my identity. It's interesting that I became, uh, at least online a sort of uh, source of knowledge when it came to arcade games. I wrote a book about buying arcade games. Now, what qualifications did I have to write a book about arcade games? Well, I bought arcade games. And that's it. I don't have a college degree in buying arcade games. I don't have any sort of uh, certification in fixing arcade games or whatever. I just jumped into the hobby. And so, you know, it was just knowledge that I learned um, and I, I think I said in Invading Spaces, uh, most of it I learned by doing things incorrectly. So I would do things wrong and lose money and then do them right. And so that was part of the reason why I wrote that book was to, you know, share the right information with people so they didn't have to lose money like I did, uh, you know, by doing things the hard way. So I was the guy who owned 30 arcade games. And most of them weren't. Some of them didn't. And then I learned how to fix stuff. And, and then I was, you know, there was that part of it. 
Uh, and then I wrote a book based on I was the guy who owned 30 arcade games. So what happened? I sold the arcade games. And so for a little bit, your personality, who you are, your identity is tied up with being the guy who owns 30 arcade games. And something that I thought was very sad of me to do, <laughs> very pathetic, was I would tell people I was the guy that used to own 30 arcade games. And that's like, you know, I, it's funny that I mentioned um, American Graffiti earlier because there's the guy in American Graffiti who had already graduated, but he was still hanging around the old high school. He was still, he hadn't let it go. Um, you know, so he would still go to the same hangouts. He would still drive his hot rod around and race the other kids that were in high school. And he just hadn't moved on. And I think we all knew people like that, um, after high school or before high school, people that were, that were older, that should have moved on, that hadn't quite moved on. And, um, for a little while, I felt like I was that guy. I was the guy, you know, I'd say like, oh, here's a picture of my arcade. Oh, you have all these games? Uh, no. <laughs> I sold them. Here's a picture of my empty storage unit where the games used to be. That's cool, huh? Um, and, and so it was like that part of my identity um, where I would go into forums and introduce myself as the guy that owns 30 arcade games. Um, and so when you tie up part of your identity to things that you own. When you get rid of those things, you get rid of that part of your identity. And that was a difficult transition for me. And so I kind of had to change the way that I talked about arcade games and, and my, uh, you know, I, I had to say, Hey, I was the guy that wrote invading spaces, which is true. Or I, you know, I know this, or I bought these games or this and that, but it was a difficult transition. Um, I know that there have been a couple of arcade documentaries that have come out. I know that there are some uh, that are in the works that are coming out. And some of those I was contacted to do interviews for. Some of them I wasn't contacted for. But it, you know, what do I want my tagline to be? Rob O'Hara used to own arcade games. That's stupid. That's not, you know, all of a sudden you're not a... Um, uh, I mean, that's not a reason to be included in those things. And so I suspect that I won't be. And that's not sour grapes. Maybe someone will do a sweet documentary on uh, almost 40-year-old men who collect Star Wars toys. And then I'm your guy. <laughs> so I'll, I'll swoop into that one. Um, but it, yeah, it just kind of seemed that, uh, that that part of that identity that's tied to being a guy that owned arcade games, once you sell those games, you sold that part of your identity. So that was a little adjustment I had to make. Um, but I think, you know, it all worked out. And, and what I found a lot was I enjoyed being the guy who owned arcade games. I didn't enjoy a lot of the other parts. I certainly was not the guy who enjoyed moving them. I wasn't the guy who enjoyed fixing them for the most part. And um, other than a, a few times where people came over, I wasn't really the guy that enjoyed playing them all that much. I mean, uh, uh, I had several occasions, this is embarrassing, and people would come over and then they would play a game and they would kill me at it. You know, and they're like, don't you ever play this? I'm like, no, nah, not really. <laughs> I enjoyed owning it. I enjoyed being that guy that said I have 30 games, but I, I just didn't play them that much, you know? And something I've talked about, about owning arcade games is 
I really, one of the reasons why that I bought these games was for um, my kids. And I thought, you know, kids today don't have arcades like we used to. I mean, we're starting to see a, a little bit of a resurgence, but uh, for the most part, I mean, when you go to Walmart, there's not an arcade game by the front door like there used to be. Um, well, there might be a claw machine or something or Hydro Thunder. Um, why are there so many damn Hydro Thunder cameras everywhere? It's like a, they're everywhere. Um, but so I, I kind of had this idea that I would build this arcade for my kids. And what I found is that without any sentimental attachment to it, they really had no interest in it. And I've told the story before that, um, you know, Mason came out one time and he played games with me for a little bit. And he's like, yeah, hey, I'm going to go play the Wii. And that's what he enjoys. He, you know, uh, he's playing Call of Duty right now. Uh, that's his generation's games. You know, he has no sentimental ties to uh, the arcade stuff. He likes it as far in as much as he likes playing any arcade game or, you know, any video game. And But there's no attachment to it. And when he's done, he's done. You know, for me... Um, there is something different between, um, uh, playing Galaga on a home console or on the iPad or whatever, and standing in front of a machine that's playing Galaga. It looks different. It feels different. It's a different experience when you're standing there, when your score is affected by your back giving out or your knees hurting the smell and you know every arcade person you open up and there's that smell of wood and electronics and and you know it, there's a smell the, the way that they sound is different so it, it is a different experience but when you don't have any ties to that experience then who cares my kid doesn't care what playing galaga smells like <laughs> you know what i mean uh he if it, if anything he'll play the game and that's it um so it has been an interesting journey from going to owning, you know, that very first elevator action cabinet that I bought uh, on a whim and um, being a game that uh, I liked, uh, you know, growing up. And it kind of came to represent, you know, you could own arcade games. You could buy arcade games and put them into your house and play them. And that idea grew into having an arcade at my house and having 30 machines and, and having people come over. And the best part, the best part of all that uh, was watching, you know, opening that door and watching people's jaws just drop and just seeing, you know, not even being able to know what question to ask. Like, how did you... What did you, where did these, you know, and just to see them, uh, that was the, that was my favorite part of, of owning all those machines, you know, and there were a few times where, um, you know, there's some different Oklahoma video game shows. And there was one time where after the show, I had a bunch of my friends come back to the house and we had some games, some stuff set up in the house. We had a Vectrex set up. We had a Wii set up. We had some different things. And then uh, out, I had the whole arcade up and running and everybody came over and enjoyed it. And that's like probably my favorite memory. Um, probably that there was one other time where my buddy, Jeff, I've talked about Jeff on the show before and Jeff was, um, my sidekick growing up. I mean, Jeff and I went to arcades, Jeff and I played the Commodore, all the things that I've talked about on this podcast, Jeff and I did together. 
And one New Year's Eve, Jeff and his wife came over and their kids came over. Um, and um, they're roughly the same age as my kids. And uh, our daughters went off and they were playing in their room or whatever. But the boys wanted to go out to the arcade. And so Jeff and I and the boys went out to the arcade and they the kids played Metal Slug together and they played Mortal Kombat um, and they played Rampage. And Jeff and I were playing, you know, um, Arrow Fighters and some of the, the different shooters and stuff and, and some of the other older games. And it was like that one moment where I spent 20 years buying and selling arcade games and moving them around and doing all these things. And it was like that one night it paid off. That one night was what I wanted it to, to be, you know? So those two memories of, uh, you know, having it almost like running my own little arcade and people came over and enjoyed it and just had a great time. So, but, um, as I've said, that space has now been reclaimed. Um, I don't have the machines in the house anymore. I don't have them. The ones that are in the garage right now, most of them are not plugged in. They're not accessible. Um, when I get that machine or maybe two machines to RKD, I'll be left with three. And um, so it, it is. Like I said, it's a little sad. I, I covered that basically. And, and basically, I, I think I've covered everything that I wanted to cover on this episode. Um, reclaiming that space has been hard. I didn't, I didn't see a lot of money come back in, you know? Um, I mean, like I said, if I broke even, I broke even. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, they're gone <laughs> and I'm left with a few multi-cades and I'm left with MAME and I'm left with, uh, my little iCade for my iPad and, um, I'm left with my little emulation computer, so. I still play the games. I still play Dig Dug about every other day. I still play Qbert. I still play them, but uh, I just don't play them on the machines anymore. So that's um, been my story about reclaiming spaces. So, and with that, that pretty much episode uh, Sue. And I just make up like put three words together. I'm so tongue tied today. Uh, that wraps up this episode of You Don't Know Flack, episode 140. Next week, I will be talking about collecting Star Wars toys. And like I said, if you're not a fan of Star Wars toys, don't let that scare you off. It's going to be a fun episode. I'm going to talk about, uh, you know, old Christmases, when I got things, what I have now, how I get things like that. It's going to be a fun episode. So tune in next week. Uh, I should have some guests on the show. I should have some people. If you have stories about uh, collecting toys, maybe, or collecting Star Wars toys or, you know, any kind of uh, toy-related stories. Uh, you can email them to me, Rob O'Hara at robohara.com. You can call the voicemail line at 405-486-YDKF. You don't know flat. Um, if you want to make it an MP3 and email it to me, you could do that. It's probably better if you send that to my Gmail account because my Rob O'Hara at robohara.com account, for some reason, has a 5 meg limit, which is was really good uh, in about 96. Uh, but Gmail, I think, has a 20 or 25 uh, meg limit. So you can send that to my Gmail, which is the same. It's robohara at gmail.com. So anyway, if you have anything you want to uh, contribute to next week's show, send that in. Once again, I can't say enough. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Thanks for uh, Sean and Dor for having me over at uh, Throwback Reviews. 
my other little podcast, you can check out throwbackreviews.com. Always thanks to the Retroist, thanks to Adventure Club Podcast, thanks to uh, Ferg's uh, 2600 Game by Game Podcast. Thanks to uh, Earl over at the Logbook. All the podcasters out there, uh, I appreciate everybody that's done plugs for me. Uh, no quarter. Oh, I almost forgot. No quarter. Um, thanks for, you know, everybody that's mentioned me. I appreciate it. And um, I just feel like we're all um, having a good time and, and having fun podcasting. And, uh, and I'm having fun. I hope you guys are too. So that's it for episode 141. Uh, 141. God dang it. Oh. Episode 140. Gosh. <laughs> That's it. I'm getting out of here before I make another mistake. So I'll see you guys next week uh, for episode 141 of You Don't Know Flat.